0: I think of how we strive to be a pluralist community with a variety of spiritualities embraced here. Not every word you hear will be something that you agree with. Not every amen you hear you're going to join in on. Not every pulpit punch will be something that you feel is appropriate. But I hope that we can receive what each of us has to offer with a deep generosity and describe best intentions. Um, I heard uh, Michael Eric Dyson on uh, WYPR uh, a couple weeks ago and turned the car around and went to the Ivy Bookshop, support your local independent bookstore, um, and, uh, and picked up a copy on the day that this book was released, uh, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Um, I haven't stopped reading and rereading what he offers to us, and I'm going to just share a couple of lines from a, a large portion in the section that he calls his sermon. Um, after, I mean, he said the book is set up to be a, um, an order of service, actually, with a call to worship, a hymn of praise, an invocation, a reading of scripture, and a very long sermon, a short benediction, a little offering, and a prelude to service but in the section on inventing whiteness, just a few words. I must say to you, my friends, that teaching in your schools has shown me that being white means never having to say you're white. Whiteness long ago, at least in America, shed its ethnic skin and struck a universal pose. Whiteness never had to announce its whiteness, never had to promote or celebrate its unique features. If whites are history, and history is white, then so are culture and society and law and government and politics. So are logic and thinking and reflection and truth and circumstances and the world and reality and morality and all that means anything at all. Yes, my friends, Your hunger for history is still pretty segregated. Your knowledge of America often ends at the color line. You end up erasing the black story as the American story, black history as American history. You certainly have an insatiable thirst for history, but only if that history justifies whiteness. Most black folk can't help but notice that many whites rarely wish or are they compelled to see. You embrace history as your faithful flame when she kisses you, and yet you spurn her as a cheating mate when she nods or winks at others. You love history when it's yet another book about, say, the founding fathers. No amount of minutiae is too tedious. No new fact is too obscure to report. The curiosity about presidents is nearly inexhaustible. History is a friend to white America when it celebrates the glories of American exceptionalism, the beauty of American invention, the genius of the American soul. History is unrestrained bliss when it sings Walt Whitman's Body Electric or toots the lyrical vision of the transcendentalists. History that swings at the plate with Babe Ruth or slides into home with Joe DiMaggio is the American pastime at its best. History hovers low in solemn regard for the men who gave up the ghost at Appomattox and speaks with quiet reverence for the Confederate flags that gleefully waved to secession. Of course, all of you don't sing from the same hymnal, but American history, the collective force of white identity that picks up velocity across centuries, mouths every note. I want to thank the president of our congregation, D. Dorian Coulter, for allowing me to take a month of study leave in January to begin a low-residency doctor of ministry program in Southern California at Claremont School of Theology. The week that I spent studying discernment-based strategic leadership is coherent with where the church is in its history, ready to declare a new mission and vision statement as any church needs to every few years to stay vital and vibrant Unitarian Universalist Universalist congregations in this time of challenge and change need to project a future for us and for our communities we need to meet the challenges and changes with a commitment to our future. I was not only in California. I spent the first few days of January in Chicago at the Winter Learning Convocation of Meadville Lombard Theological Schools, where leaders of the school and of the Unitarian Universalist Association addressed the threat of authoritarianism around the world. How do we understand the difference between the liberality and freedom we preach, where we accept that there are many paths that one may follow in living a life that is ethical and moral and spiritual, and the fear which compels people to seek exclusion and control as a means of safety. How do we navigate that space? After California, I was in Baltimore for most of the month, showing up to welcome a new member and then sitting in the organ loft to hear Reverend Dale Lance preach, but then going to preach two weeks ago in our sibling congregation in York, Pennsylvania, and then going to my study retreat at the Freighters of the Wayside Inn. Freighters is spelled F-R-A-T-E-R-S. It might sound like Frater's. Um, of the wayside in, in Sudbury, Massachusetts, where I gave a paper which was better received, I think, than any paper I've ever presented. And you'll hear a shortened version of it in a couple of weeks. I also spent a day at the headquarters of the Unitarian Universalist Association, checking in with our social justice leaders and the office of the president, seeing the new chapel where I preached once by Skype, I'd never seen it before during the week after Freddie Gray's death and saw the innovative ways that they are retaining some of the historical artifacts from the old buildings when we moved to a technologically appropriate 21st century facility that we have needed for some time and which we finally have. In all these places, I was happy to report to people that the Baltimore Project, this precious community... continues to do our work with optimism and commitment, with music and emotion and even joy. I bring to you, Baltimore, the best wishes of many communities for our future, for our faithfulness, and for our family. Black History Month is a kind of act of reparation a chance to affirm that there is not one story to the story of this country, but a large variety of stories. Not a unique, approved history that supersedes all others, but a universe of stories that speak to one another, that contest with one another, that elaborate the richness of who we are with one another. Some of the stories of Black History Month are spoken with an African-American diction. Some are told with African-American cultural norms. Many display African-American subjectivity, that is, the African-American not as the object of the story, but the agent, the mover and shaker, the subject of the story. All these stories are about relationships the relationships within and among those who inhabit the African-American experience, and the relationship between the storyteller, speaker, and the story reader, hearer. Stories are created, and stories are creative. A good story changes the way we think about things, and might even change the way we think about ourselves, might even change the way that we act. I'm going to share two stories about three congregations today. The three congregations are this congregation. I heard something about how can three be one a second ago, but that's all right not this First Unitarian Church of Baltimore, parenthesis, Universalist and Unitarian, close paren, that we know and are, but the congregations that preceded us, that made us some of what we are today. I'm going to talk about a moment in the life of the Second Universalist Society and a moment in the life of the Society of the Church of the Savior, Second Unitarian, and I'll share some thoughts from the First Independent Church of Baltimore, the people who built this building. Let's consider for just a moment the fourth minister of this church. You may have seen his name painted on the ceiling of our parish hall. Indeed, you may be one of the women who contributed about 3,000 hours of volunteer time to create those stencils and decorate our hall. But that shortest of names, W A R E, representing the longest of names, John Fothergill Waterhouse Ware, have you heard a Unitarian 19th century name? There it is, recalls a significant leader of the city at a difficult time in our history. Hear these words from a memorial address given by Baltimorean William E. Matthews before the historic Charles Street African Methodist Episcopal Church in Boston within a year of Reverend Ware's death. I quote, Reverend Ware came to our city in 1864. The city was under federal occupation with great fear that if it, that if it were lost to the southern sympathizers in our midst, Washington, D.C. would be surrounded by hostile forces. Actually, I'm not quoting yet. Forgive me. <laughs> that sounded like my words, OK. The city was a bastion of possibility to African-Americans with the largest population of free blacks in the country. But the free black population of Maryland was only 49% of the African-American population in Maryland. And the restrictions on the lives of free free blacks challenged the notions of what it means to be free. And here I quote, The city of Baltimore contained a colored population of 60,000, one half of whom were free. Freedom in any other country under the sun meant something, but in Maryland it was the synonym for despotism and tyranny. For instance, it was a penal offense for anyone to teach a colored person to read or write. So, of course, there were no schools. It was a penal offense for any aspiring colored man to subscribe to any of the great northern papers, such as the Tribune, for instance. A free, colored man could not walk the street after ten o'clock at night, even in a case of mercy or dire necessity, without a permit from the mayor. And then, if one desired to have a few friends spend an evening or attend a wedding or whatnot, it could only be done by a permit from the mayor, coupled with the obligation of feeding as many watchmen as chose to come upon us. They held that any number over three beside a man's household was an unlawful assembly. While charged first-class fare, we were not permitted to ride the first-class cars, but the most cultured gentlemen and refined ladies were compelled to ride in the smoking car. In traveling from Baltimore to Harrisburg, the Honorable Edward W. Blyden, now Secretary of State for Liberia, was compelled by the besotted brakeman of the train to leave the passenger car and take his place in the baggage car to find a seat as best he could on a box, a bag, or trunk. But I think the most pitiable feature of this sad picture is that these minions of the law never felt humiliated in the mean work they were called upon to perform, but rather gloried in it and prided themselves on the number of insults they could heap on a defenseless people. Close quote. Into this culture comes a new minister with a distinguished Boston profile, from a distinguished family, and with a distinguished education, and expectations that our Unitarian faith could have an impact in Baltimore. It was an exciting time to be a Unitarian. During the Civil War, a portion of Unitarianism was developing a sense that together we were one church. Unitarians had founded the private relief agency, the United States Sanitary Commission. The Minister of All Souls Church in New York City, Reverend Henry Whitney Bellows, was encouraging us to be about work in the community. And congregations were working with one another in doing Civil War-related relief work. We were building our identity nationally, and we were finding ways to make our faith real in our communities In Baltimore, our minister, John F. W. Ware, helped us to be about the creation of schools for the free blacks of Baltimore and soon-to-be free blacks of the South. Quoting Matthews again, Like John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, but preaching a doctrine of life and hope and joy, and proclaiming from pulpit and platform that humanity was everywhere substantially one, one in nature and one in wants, and that however different we may seem to be, different in aspect, culture, aspirations, thought, and work, we are nevertheless one, in the final analysis of our being, one in the facts and one in the principles that lift us from the animal and make us human. And that in studying the facts outside of ourselves, the facts of law, of nature and of morality, we find them uniform and everywhere the same, and that therefore the same gospel and the same plane of thought that was good for the highest was also good for the lowest, if there be any lowest among God's children and when his preparations had become had been completed on this basis he devoted himself to it as the object of his life and once in hot pursuit of his end there was no withholding of his resources with his great heart open to the wants and needs of the people he poured out all the energies and talents and high qualities he possessed Determined to go forward with unshrinking persistence till the last unsolved problem had yielded its secret. While his clear aim, securely grafted in his will, gathered all his powers and with titanic zeal conquered every obstacle and neither could anxieties, uncertainties, nor the most powerful of opposition of public opinion swerve him from the fixedness of his purpose. Close quotation. Such was the founding of the Baltimore Association for the Moral and Intellectual Improvement of Colored People, founded by a dozen civic leaders, but whose leading light was John F. W. Ware. This is black history, and this is our history. Now I turn to another story. The Universalists of Baltimore, they were a busy bunch too. They started in the 1830s and from the first were a confident and adaptive group. When their first building was flooded by the Jones River, they met disbanded the congregation and abandoned their ruined church and then rebranded themselves immediately as Second Universalist, moved forward selling the old property and building anew. Their glory days were ahead, they thought. And you see, even in this sacred space, a marker for their most popular and persuasive minister, Dr. Royal H. Pullman, whose memorial stone from the Calvert Street Church was moved to this hall when our congregations united in the 1930s. But that marker of the glory days is part of our Black History Month, too, because not Dr. Pullman, but the last minister of Second Universalist, had some sorry things to say about universalism and its ability to adapt. In a letter from uh, Andrew um, Carriker, the final minister of Second Universalist, to the general superintendent of the Universalist Church of America, Roger Etz, in February of 1934, he said, our church here, up uh, Calvert and Landvale, Landvale. thank you. Thank you, I knew it would come. Uh, Thank you, God. Uh, (laughs) Our church here is unfavorably located. The community is not what universalism needs, and the people are not the type upon whom we can safely rely for the extension and maintenance of the work. A boarding house district gradually being crowded out by a slowly increasing number of Negroes is not conducive to constructive and successful work. We are decidedly out of place here and are really wasting our time trying to carry on. The geographical location of the church militates against its success. It is too remotely removed from the desirable residential sections of the city. And then he asks his superintendent, in caps, is there not some place for me where I can work with encouragement and hope? End of quotation. Not the whole story, of course, but part of our story. Not asking, saying the community is not what universalism needs, is not asking, is universalism what any community needs. (laughs) Not to be demonized. I think I need to say there, but for the grace of God, go I. But we face this sad story, rather, with compassion. But a church that judges clearly its capacity and makes a decision that to adapt means to move forward with union into this congregation, to do what it has done in the past, which was to sell its building, to find a moment to reset its mission and vision, to devote itself to the future. There's something admirable in that decision. And in a way, this is black history. And this is our history. Please, let us not be smug about good stories and bad stories. Let's not number good Unitarians and bad Universalists. Let's just accept our complicated history as simply the story we need to make peace with. Because as sad as the story of Second Universalist and its ending, and as wonderful as the story of John F. W. Ware sounds, here's another assessment of our story in 1867. I'm quoting. Mr. Ware and his ministry in Baltimore labored under many disadvantages. Unitarians are there looked upon as infidels, mockingly called by the people uh, uh, unbelievers. But his old church was cold and cheerless, a a bad place for a spirit such as his. And he chafed under the restraint of the old regime that seemed to govern it. But when he became unfettered and was left to do his master's will in such a manner as was to him wisest, then came forth the hidden force that was in him. In the hall of the Masonic Temple, he preached many of his best practical sermons filled with love, charity, and sympathy with his fellows to crowded houses of all nationalities and religions. They were black and white, Jew and Gentile. There he opened hearers their everyday life, filled with sympathy for their trials. He seemed to be able to go down into the very depths of their previous week's life as no other man could. Where's glory days in his public ministry in Baltimore? Yes, we're with the Church of the Savior, second Unitarian, including some Unitarians from Charles and Franklin, but his great public ministry came after he resigned from this church. And as he preached first in the Masonic Temple and after that became too small at the Ford's Opera House, his great public ministry came in some ways in spite of us, as well as because of us. And that is something for us to consider as we adopt a new mission and vision. We love this house and the way we are in it, but the black history that we are both called to love and to write anew as we raise a new banner outside, as we adopt a new mission and vision in our hearts and intentions builds on the sadness and the celebration of this diverse and complicated history in these diverse and complicated times. This is black history. This is our history. So finally, what will our addition to the story be? How will we be part of the black history that will one day be spoken of, of this place in the larger world? I think of our banner raising. I think of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think of our work in East Baltimore, both at the PACA School and with Dayspring. I think of our work with Bridge, Maryland, both in the past and maybe in the future. And I think of the good intentions we bring to this work and our authentic mission and vision. At this moment, I will quote one final time from the words of William E. Matthews, speaking of Mr. Ware, but maybe speaking to us as well. My fellow citizens, if you will look upon the monument to John F. W. Ware, come to Maryland and look about you at the happy faces of the 40,000 children as they merrily went their way in city and town to the hundreds of schools which now dot the state, at the rapid advancement of an enlightened enlightened public sentiment, and at the regard for law and order, the dignity and self-respect with which these new citizens carry themselves. O good friend gone, thy work and faith and love were not in vain but have brought forth a rich and abundant harvest in a race who have grandly learned the hard but useful lessons in the alphabet of life, industry, energy, honesty, promptness, frugality, patience, and in all the elements which lead to a well-ordered and dignified life. Farewell, noble and great-hearted man. When the historian of the future shall write broadly and candidly of the times in which we live and the struggles of a poor and ill-used people upward from their house of bondage and outward from their dark night of ignorance, side by side with Channing and Parker and Garrison and May, will appear in characters of living light the name of John Fothergill Waterhouse Ware, the admiration of the American people and an inspiration for the cause he so earnestly espoused and so magnificently served. Blessed be, beloved, and amen.